Welcome to Eastern Standard, produced for WEKU by Dynamics Productions. I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for joining us. This week, a Lexington teacher in the spotlight, how not all city water systems are created or maintained equally, a Kentucky composer draws from the poetry of Wendell Berry, audio tips for budding podcasters, and equal time for cats. First, there's the matter of democracy. What if one day you woke up and discovered that democracy had become a thing of the past, that you were no longer free to speak your mind, to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, pursue the things that bring you joy? If we are to take seriously the public statements being made by the leading presidential candidate of one of our country's two main political parties, those freedoms that we now take for granted seem endangered. Well, what would life be like? To get a sense of that, a perspective from one who has known life under a dictatorship. I'm talking with Patrick Latanga, an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Eastern Kentucky University and an emigre from Congo, where he grew up under a brutal dictatorship. Welcome to Eastern Standard, Dr. Latanga. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. And so if you would first briefly just fill us in on your journey from Congo to America. Well, I left the Congo in 2000, and it was during a conflict. There was war going on in the Congo at that time. Mobutu was just toppled, and then um, President Lauren Kabila was trying to settle in and uh, you know build up his political machinery. And then uh, there was a conflict with him and the, and the Rwandans who helped him. So in 2000, uh, I was still a student at the Catholic University. I came to realize that... I didn't have a lot of options in the Congo. So I left. I went to South Africa. And then there, I stayed about for three years. I got finally the opportunity to come to the U.S. in 2003. And what attracted you to the USA? The USA was basically an opportunity that I got. Uh, you know, if you are an asylum seeker or you are a refugee of any kind in a second country of asylum, and if something goes wrong there, you have an opportunity to apply for resettlement into a third country. So I was living in South Africa in in, uh, in Johannesburg with my uncle. And then there was a conflict between him and other Congolese who wanted to go join the military and things like that. From that conflict, the United Nations gave us an opportunity to be resettled in the U.S., I wanted to talk with you, Patrick, because I, I think you can bring a perspective about democracy that many of us here in this country uh, take for granted. Uh, let's begin by asking you to describe for us what it was like to live under the rule of a dictator. So I grew up under a dictatorship, as you said it at the beginning. I was under President Mobutu. Uh, life was structured around him because he was at the top of everything. He embodied the legislature or parliament, if you want, uh, the judiciary and the executive. There was no other law that was superior to him, which meant that the, the president could do anything he wanted. Uh, there was a time where, for some reason, he decided that Western-style accoutrement was no longer permissible in the Congo. So he decided to ban things such as a tie, things such as women wearing pants, unless it was for gymnastics or sport purposes. Uh, if you were a Congolese at that time, 
wearing a tie was an offense. You could go to jail just because of what you were wearing. Now, imagine that if your dress is policed, how much more will be policed in the society? A lot was policed. What other sorts of freedoms that, that we just uh, take for granted here in this country were not allowed? Here, uh, we take for granted a lot of things, uh, like the liberty to write or the liberty to think or the liberty to shoot a movie, uh, depending on your own understanding or the kind of interpretation you have. In the Congo, as uh, it, it was Zaire, of course, when I was growing up, uh, you couldn't just write a thing or even a poem that was critical of the regime. If you did, you were in danger of either losing something or losing somebody or even dying. So everything was kind of policed by, uh, by, by the regime. There are lots of concerns about voter turnout in this presidential election uh, we're having here this year. A lot of frustration around the options. People feeling disappointed in and turned off by all the divisiveness and wondering even if their vote counts. What can you tell us from your perspective about the value of a free and fair election? It is very, very important that people do participate because um, – for from my own experience as somebody who was growing up in the Congo, voting was basically a sham. What we had there was ritual elections. You already knew that President Mobutu would win, but there was an election. And there was an election where there was no a competitor on the other side of it. Now, uh, people got com- basically used to living like that. The challenge and the concern that I personally have, as I call myself a new, a recent American, it is that people are now taking it for granted as if uh, this liberty we have here, this democracy we have here, this facility of dreaming about our lives, the possibility we can have will always be here. This is the trick, though. If people do not exercise their own civic right, if they do not vote accordingly, we might wake up in the morning where you are no longer able to think freely. You can't write freely. You can't speak freely. God forbid they take us to a time where they have to police even what you are, the clothing you have, as in some countries. I mean, even recently, as in Iran, you see people are policed, especially women, things that they have to wear, how they have to comport themselves in public. Those are the kind of fear that somebody like me, who grew up in a dictatorial regime has in mind when I see American casually speaking or even inviting the possibility of an authoritarian or dictatorial regime. I am deeply concerned. How is all of this playing out in the classroom? Are are your students uh, aware of what is at stake in the 2024 presidential election? And do you talk to them about what we're talking about today? We do talk about it, uh, but because of, of course, I did my undergrad in the U.S. as well. There's a a gap here where students are kind of concerned or they do not want to engage in dicey debate or conversation. I give them often the example of John Kerry and George Bush when they were running in 2004. I was still an an undergraduate student. We were debating the issues, but we were not enemies. It was 
a freer atmosphere of understanding one another and debating policies and positions. So the ideas of our candidate or the people were favoring to win in 2004 did not uh, sip into everything that we were. It was just a position. But today it's kind of hard to have students debate openly about, say, uh, former President Trump or President Biden or even President or former President Obama. Why? Because people are now scared that one single thing that they will say, either it's wrong or that it's misperceived, will follow them throughout the day or throughout the semester. So students are they are not ready to uh, engage in free debate, political debate in class. Well, you touched on this very briefly a moment ago, but what do you hear from others who, like yourself, have made new lives here in the United States and are hearing about the possibility of experiencing authoritarian rule? The first thing that we have among ourselves, you know, emigre from other parts of the world, those who have lived in dictatorial societies, it is this belief. We are wondering if this is still the America that we came about 20 years ago or 15 years ago. We don't believe it. We think that somebody's going to wake us up one day and say, this was just a bad dream. That's one side. The other thing that we have going on is that we do not really understand what people mean when they invite the possibility of a dictatorship here. Are they conceiving it as a dictatorship which is governed by fear, meaning there is execution on on the streets, there is gruesome activity happening there where political uh, uh, opposition is locked or killed or banished or anything of that kind? That's one type of uh, dictatorship. Or are they thinking about the what uh, Sergei uh, Guriev and Daniel Tresman call uh, a spin dictatorship where the dictator has figured out how to manipulate people, how to manipulate information, whereby you are just believing in the mind of the one who's dictating the laws and everything else. That is the part that I would love to have a conversation with an American who's wanting to have a dictatorship in the US to tell me what do they really mean? Because it's it's frankly scary. Do you have a message to voting age American citizens uh, who are looking at this election and wondering what to do? Yes, I would ask them to go vote, but I would ask them to go vote with an idea that tomorrow they will have the freedom to vote again and again. Because this is what happened. Even when it began under the Romans time where the dictator was given a chance to be uh, the sole, the executive, the uh, Congress or lawmakers and the executioner of everything. It was just for a moment. Unfortunately, you cannot give a dictator a hand because if you just give him a hand, it's going to take the entire body. It's going to take everything you have and there will be no longer recourse for you. So my hope is that American will go vote, but vote with an attitude that tomorrow you can have another chance to vote. That's Dr. Patrick Latonga, an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Eastern Kentucky University and an emigre from Congo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for having me.
There are Oscars for movie stars, Grammys for recording artists, the Pulitzer for journalists. What about classroom teachers? Here's education contributor Gil Hunter. Jacob Ball is a nationally board-certified agriculture teacher at Lexington's Carter G. Woodson Academy and a recent recipient of the Milken Educator Award presented by the Milken Family Foundation and awarded to teachers who are considered classroom heroes, ensuring a bright future for their students. Mr. Ball, first of all, congratulations, and thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. So the Milken Educator Award has been called the Oscars of Teaching not just for why the recognition goes to deserving teachers, but also, I guess, for how the recognition occurs. Can you describe how you found out you'd been named a Milken winner? Yes. So uh, it was definitely a, a shock and uh, an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm so glad to have been recognized by the Milken uh, Education Foundation. Um, we were told at school earlier in the week that we would be having a, a big assembly, that we would be having some uh, important people from the school district and possibly the state, but we had no idea what the uh, particular assembly was for. And as uh, when we got here that morning, uh, there was a stage and balloons and you could tell a lot of work had been put in for uh, a pretty big uh, recognition. And uh, as the assembly began to go and uh, people from the district were speaking and uh, Lieutenant Governor Coleman spoke and then uh, someone from the Milken, Dr. Jane Foley from the Milken Foundation uh, got on the stage and began talking about how they were going to recognize a teacher and then started mentioning about the, uh, you know, the cash award that goes with it. And uh, some of my students were up there and and it, it kind of dawned on me that I thought I might be the one getting recognized. And uh, it was definitely a shock and surprise. And to be the have the whole school in attendance and all the students, uh, it was certainly a, a moment you know, that doesn't happen a lot in teaching. So to, to be recognized like that in such a high profile way was a great experience for sure. So let's talk about what led up to that recognition. Uh, you grew up on a family farm in Nelson County. Is that right? Yes, sir. And you participated in FFA as a student. So how and when did you decide you wanted to teach for a living and specifically work in technical or agricultural education? Yeah, so I was very fortunate as a student uh, at Nelson County. Uh, we had a really strong agriculture and FFA program. And uh, my teachers there, we had a four-teacher program, and, and they really invested and uh, kind of highlighted this as a potential career opportunity for me. So uh, my agriculture teachers were the first ones to uh, kind of put that bug in my ear about, you know, hey, you know, maybe maybe you should think about being a teacher someday. Um Went to University of Kentucky and actually started out in ag engineering, uh, and and that really wasn't the path for me. And so uh, I switched to ag education as a major uh, to try and figure out what I wanted to do uh, because that that particular degree program you get to take classes in all different parts of agriculture. Uh, and really, for me, it's kind of crazy to think, but it wasn't until my student teaching experience. Uh, the last year of school that it really clicked for me. Uh, and then kind of after the fact, uh, I found out, you know, I knew my, my grandmother was an educator. She taught for 40 years. Uh, and then I found out that I kind of was a multi-generational line of teachers, uh, kind of. So it was maybe a, a career path destined for me from the beginning. But now that I'm in agriculture and education, uh, it's, it's been a, it, you know, this is year 13 for me. Uh, I've never really considered leaving the classroom, uh, and it's just been an amazing experience. Uh, but it was definitely that that push and investment from my agriculture teachers that led me into this career path. So now here you are teaching agriculture at Carter G. Woodson Academy. A lot of people may not know much about Carter G. Woodson, and uh, some people may even wonder about the role of ag education in Lexington generally. 
Can you talk about Woodson Academy and the importance of technical education and agricultural education at the school? Carter G. Woodson Academy uh, is a, a specialized college preparatory program within Fayette County Public Schools. Uh, it's actually been around since the fall of 2012. And it serves a student population that is all male and mostly students of color. We have a very high African-American and Hispanic student population. Locust Trace Agri-Science Center is kind of our hub for ag education within the district. Uh, And so the position that I have is kind of a a joint partnership between both Carter G. Woodson Academy and Locust Trace. Agriculture education at our school, we really focus on the agribusiness curriculum and try to teach through the lens Uh, of African-American history and culture uh, to try and connect my students uh, to agriculture. Obviously, Lexington and Fayette County is a very large agriculture hub for the state, you know, with the equine industry and all the opportunities that go along uh, within the different areas of agriculture. It's just, you know, it's a great opportunity to engage our students in the career opportunities within the ag industry in our area. I really think that the importance of technical education, agriculture education really gives students the opportunity to apply the content that they learn maybe in other education areas. uh, And it really connects what they're learning in school to careers. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's such a fulfilling opportunity and and career uh, to be able to directly impact and and prepare students for uh, careers within a specific industry. So I think I heard that you created an agriculture wall of fame with, uh, what was it, Hispanic and black farmers? Is that right? Yes, sir. And so so can you talk about that particular kind of approach to your content and how you see it impacting the students you work with? At Carter G. Woodson Academy as a whole, that is our purpose as an academy. It's important that our students see themselves represented in the curriculum that we teach, whether that is in an English class, a math class, or or in my agriculture education class, uh, we want to make sure that our students see themselves portrayed in a positive light um, and that they see themselves entering into career fields and and career opportunities that maybe they don't see themselves represented in in traditional media or or in society. Um, we did something as simple as African-American and Hispanic Wall of Fame. You know, just when students walk in, they see themselves in the curriculum that I'm teaching. We also highlight and or I do a good, or try to highlight uh, historical black colleges and universities that offer agriculture programs. Uh, we have a lot of conversations about the lack of diversity in the agriculture industry. Um, and so it's important for me that they see themselves represented. And that way I can connect the content of what I'm teaching to their lives. You've also started there at Carter G. Woodson Academy, a chapter of Future Farmers of America, FFA, and also a chapter of Junior Minorities in Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Related Sciences. Both those programs are known for developing visionary student leaders across the country. So what's been the effect of those programs at Woodson Academy, and what's been your greatest joy in leading those programs? Yeah, definitely. Being an agriculture teacher um, goes hand in hand with being an FFA advisor. And then in the case of uh, Carter G. Woodson Academy, uh, launching the, the, the Manners uh, program, the Juniors and Minorities in Ag, Natural Resources and Related Sciences. Uh, both of those programs have missions about developing students for careers, uh, for personal growth. In, in the case of FFA, personal growth, career success, premier leadership, personal growth and career success. And then at Manners, uh, is all about empowering minorities in agriculture. Um, both of these organizations provide students with uh, 
leadership opportunities, workshops, conferences, career and leadership development events. And both of these are, are student-led organizations. And so it's really given students an opportunity to have ownership of the program. Um, you know, I'm the leader in FA opening ceremonies. You know, the, the advisor, my job is to advise from time to time as a need to and so uh, it's really given students ownership of the program so that they can make this program reflect what they want it to be. And I think that that's been my experience growing up in, in a more rural area of the state uh, is completely different from the lives of my students. And so I, I connect agriculture to them. I connect career opportunities to them. Uh, obviously, there's specific FFA and, and manners opportunities that we reach out to. But at the local level, you know, the, the meetings that we run and, and the the initiatives that the program has, uh, those are run by the students. And uh, I think if, you know, I let them take the the, the driver's seat, uh, only good things can come from that for sure. So what's next for you? As far as for me, I am uh, so blessed to be where I'm at professionally and, and uh, at Carter G. Woodson Academy. Um, I have my administration certificate and that sort of stuff, but uh, since coming to Carter G. Woodson Academy, I've really found a new passion for being in the classroom. And so for me, I uh, just really want to uh, continue working in the classroom, continue seeing this program grow. Um, part of being a Milken educator is the opportunity to kind of advocate and meet with other Milken educators from across the country uh, this summer in, in uh, Los Angeles. So I'm looking forward